Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is the week we get to hear a lecture from our Beeson archives, and today the lecturer is Professor Douglas Stewart. He is professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's actually been to Beeson on several occasions, one of which was to give our Biblical Studies lectures in 2008. And the lecture we're going to hear today is from that series. It's on the law and the Old Testament and how that applies to the life of believers today. And the key word, I think, is relationship. He tells us that the law is a part of God's covenantal relationship with his people, and therefore it has applicability for Christians today. And we have to read it and see it, of course, in the light of Jesus Christ and the wonderful gospel of grace that we find there. But I think you're going to be challenged by this lecture and encouraged in your own Christian life. Let's go now to Hodges Chapel here at Beeson and listen to our friend, Professor Douglas Stewart as he speaks to us on the Old Testament, the law, and the Christian life. If you had in mind to print up and sell t-shirts that would commemorate this lecture series, I'm not suggesting that you do that, but you know how, you know, producing t-shirts to commemorate things is kind of part of our culture. So let's say you were saying, gee, what kind of t-shirt could we have? to commemorate the the lecture series. I'm suggesting that it would not read, I survived the Beeson Biblical Lectures, April 2008. I know, I can't tell you what to do, but I'm suggesting you not do that. I'm suggesting that the t-shirt would read, no rules, no relationship. If you can get that concept, I think you've got something that'll help you understand both Old Testament law and the law of Christ, the New Testament appropriation of uh, the Old Testament covenant law in its transformed uh, setting that Jesus gives it. If you can get that concept, no rules, no relationship, you yourself are going to have what I think is a basic insight into why there are laws within a covenant. And I think you're going to be able to pass it on to people. I hope so. I hope that that's the sort of thing you'll do. I haven't patented or copyrighted that little slogan. So you can put it on a t-shirt. Go right ahead. Um, I would like a picture of me above it, but it's not essential. That is what I would like to encourage you to keep in mind as we go along. The whole purpose of law is not to make people keep rules so that God can say, well, that'll keep them busy, or any similar thing. Uh, It's not just to teach obedience. I have a son who's in the army, and the army does a good job of using rules and rituals to keep people 
busy enough that they learn to obey without question. That's a positive thing. That is good. And the military knows how to do it well, and they've perfected it as a, a method. But, but God is going beyond that. God is not saying, I want people who know how to obey me, and then I'm honored and glorified. God is saying, I want people in a relationship with me. And that relationship ultimately is the relationship of a good dad to very much loved children. That's what he wants. The ultimate goal of God in creating us was to give us a chance to become people who could join him forever in heaven. God, in effect, is saying, I live in a wonderful place. It's great here. I made it. I've made it just the way it should be. And I want you all to come and join me. I'm inviting you. But there are rules to establish in part. Not, it's not all that establishes a relationship, but the rules begin the establishment of a relationship. And it is the relationship of my being a, a father to you and you being my children that is going to make this possible. I'm building an eternal family and I'm inviting you to be part of it. I want you to reign with Christ, not just make it into heaven, but I want you to be uh, his brothers and sisters and reign as royalty forever as part of my family. That's the relationship. And everything related to these rules is toward that end, not just so that God can say, yeah, look, I make people obey me. Pastors tend to avoid preaching the law. When's the last time you heard a juicy series on Leviticus? It's not that there couldn't be one. It's just that there's a lot of reasons why avoiding doing a series on Leviticus ends up being the default position. It's harder to make people listen. It's harder to explain what's going on. It's so much easier to go right back to Ephesians in which Paul lays out the doctrine for half the book and then applies it for half the book. Thank you, Paul. You did my work for me. But uh, Moses doesn't get such appreciation. He didn't do it. So there are a lot of reasons, and I can't go into all of them, but, you know, this is stuff that we avoid. Uh, many, many pastors have never, ever done a series on the law, and therefore people are just not getting the whole counsel of God. They, they don't know how to do it. So we've got to be careful that we are consciously committed to preaching the whole counsel of God last because of all the subtle pressures, we just stay away from it. We say, how in the world am I going to make that come out? Here's a story about a guy who's gathering sticks on the Sabbath and he, they end up stoning him and so on. How am I going to give an altar call after that? But we can't. We can't avoid preaching the law. We will not help people think and act morally, which is a huge part of the relationship of the covenant to God. He, he is ultimately moral. He is totally holy. And he says, hey, I want you to be in my family. Well, there has to be a characteristic family uh, likeness, and that includes morality. And if we don't acquaint people with the major repository of morality in the Bible, there it is, all those commandments that set the standards for what morality looks like, um, we're just going to do them a disservice. So don't impoverish your people. Don't say, 
these people can't handle Old Testament law and its transitions into the New Covenant and the applicability and carryovers and all of that with their complexities. It's like the plumber saying, these pipes don't want to be fixed. The plumber can't say that. And you can't say, my congregation can't handle biblical law. No, it's part of the whole counsel of God. God did not say, wow, I wasted all that time. Now, we've got to be careful not to conclude that the lack of repetition of the Old Testament law in the New represents a rejection of that law as the guiding word of God. Now, I've, I've chosen these words carefully. Guiding word of God is not quite the same as saying covenant obligation. But would we not regard the book of Ruth as guiding word of God? Wouldn't we think First and Second Samuel are guiding word of God? Isn't Second Chronicles guiding word of God? So surely, surely the law continues to be the guiding word of God in a special kind of way for its kind of genre. And uh, since Jesus says so clearly in Matthew that not one little tiny bit of the law is going to pass away until all be fulfilled. Um, we, we've got to take seriously that what God has done uh, in not repeating the law in the New Testament is a divine efficiency, but it's not a rejection of the value in the New Covenant for a New Testament believer, a follower of Christ who has the Spirit dwelling in him or her. It's not a rejection of that law that's the issue. It's how to use it as guiding Word of God. Observation number four. I have about 70 observations or something, so we're just getting started here. We're just getting rolling. And um, if, if you want to go out and buy paper and come back quickly, you can do that. I don't uh, know, know that I uh, have tried to limit this in any way. I've got a lot of slides, and I'm going to whip through a lot of them fairly rapidly. But you'll be able to see the common thread, I'm confident. The Holy Spirit likes Old Testament law just fine. This is a presumptuous thing for me to say, but I think it's true. And, and he wants to guide people in coming to Christ and living for Christ. He wants to use it that way. And I think it does. Now, your own professor, professor Thielman has shown in his book on the law in the New Testament how even the structure of the Old Testament law provides a foundation for the gospel in the New Testament. Even the very structure does it. And if you don't believe me, buy his book and read it, and you will believe me. Honest, you will. Uh, all Scripture does that. A wise pastor is going to have to be aware of the fact that it is popular these days, especially if you fall into that awful trap of being numbers-driven, to try to get people into a relationship with God through Christ without emphasizing that the follow-up to that, not the cause of the conversion, but the follow-up to the conversion is really then a conversion of subsequent behavior. So Jim Packer is famous for saying, the proof of conversion is a converted life. You really cannot do justice to the Scripture, which talks about how it is that people come to Christ and become his disciples by somehow preventing them from understanding that they will be expected 
to live a life in conformity to the commitment they've made to Christ. Think of it this way. Suppose you wanted to sign up for a hitch in the military. It's kind of easy to do. In fact, they'll make it happen for you. And the main thing you will do is write your name. And most of us know how to do that. You'll write your name. And you'll write it several times. And you'll be in the military. But you know, having done that, you have no right to say, wait a minute, I just signed up for the military. I didn't sign up to obey these sergeants. I didn't say I was going to do that. I didn't sign up to have to work all day long doing all kinds of training and stuff and getting ready and, and, and shooting guns and all kinds of other things. I didn't sign up to do that. I just signed my name and I wanted to be in the military. Well, too bad. You didn't get the concept. If you're in the military, there are rules. If you're in a relationship with God through Christ, there are rules. Conversion means a converted life. People need to know that. You're doing them a favor. You're properly helping them, and that's where biblical law comes in. Now, in a rules relationship, benefits are the goal. This is good. God has worked it out in a way that he is blessed by our obedience, but we are too. And that's the purpose for the rules. So if the rules are known and kept, blessings come in abundance. And that's a big aspect of the way the Old Testament law is structured. You don't get a covenant without the following list of blessings that will come. Now, there are curses that will come too if the law is disobeyed because keeping it is beneficial, breaking it is not. So the giver of the covenant gives it precisely for the benefit of people, that they might enjoy him and his goodness forever. And that's what happens when you get really converted people in your church, in your youth group, in your Bible study, in your Sunday school class, at, at your little mission church, in your evangelistic effort, in your counseling ministry. You get people who are converted and love pleasing God. Their joy level goes way up. They don't say, hey, I know God is happier, but I'm more miserable. It doesn't work that way. They say, now life has meaning. Now I've got some purpose. Now it counts. Uh, what a difference it makes. It's almost as much fun as learning Hebrew. I'm not kidding. Now, you know there are scholars saying every kind of thing everywhere. Uh, hermeneutics has broken wide open, and there are every kind of thing happening. We're going to have the uh, meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature in Boston uh, this coming fall. And I was looking over the uh, list of uh, seminars and uh, types of groups that are meeting, and they've just got everything. They've got canine interpretations of Scripture. No, I'm just kidding, but it's almost that bad. Uh, just every wild sort of hermeneutic. So it's everywhere. But among what's everywhere is that there are people who are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When Paul says, you know, against such and such, there's no law, and let's not keep the law, and so on, and getting past a number of things that Jesus says, there are people who are actually arguing true antinomianism, that uh, to be in Christ does not require actually doing anything but just accepting the universal salvation that God wants everybody to have. Uh, this is a nice sentimentalistic view, 
and plenty of people hold it because plenty of people are sentimentalistic. They actually want to believe what feels good to believe. And one of these silly arguments that is given, but not silly to many apparently, is the idea that in the statement of creation, right from the beginning we have the statement that God saw that everything he created was good, including his work on the sixth day when he created us. It's good. So everybody is basically good. The institutions may be bad, corporate culture may be bad, that kind of thing. Uh, discrimination may be bad, intolerance may be bad, but people are basically good. Therefore, God has, in effect, made a universalistic salvation statement right in Genesis 1. They're all good enough for me. I actually would like to suggest uh, something to you that the statement that is normally translated, God saw that it was good, is mistranslated. I'll, I'm going to suggest to you that that's an idiom that doesn't mean what it seems like it says. Now, this is an idiom for those of you who know Hebrew. In fact, even if you don't know Hebrew, it's still the same idiom. Ra'ah plus the object plus key plus tov means God loved it. What we really have in Genesis 1 is an idiomatic statement that is in concordance with um, what we have in John 3.16. It's an early statement of the love of God for his creation. And it is not saying everything is essentially good. It is not saying that. It is saying that God loves everything. And especially, of course, uh, the human beings that are the crowning achievement of his creation. This is important to get. If you can get that fact, you can kind of get past one kind of erroneous and misleading red herring interpretation that's out there. Well, we're up to observation seven out of how many zillions I've got. I have here a swipe at the emerging church movement. If you're well into the emerging church movement, you can go home and say, well, the lecture was half decent, but he did take a swipe at us. At the heart of the so-called emergent movement is the idea that churches need to be missional but not doctrinal. This is hot. This is very big. There are whole seminaries who have said, we want to be the seminary of the emerging church movement. We want to be missional but not doctrinal. Let doctrine come in to whatever extent it comes in, but never push it and never make it prominent. That distinction is not scriptural. There's always mission and there's always doctrine. There's always grace and there's always obedience in response to grace. You say thank you by saying, what may I do to please you? You don't just say thank you, I'm glad to go to heaven and I'm back to my old life. From the beginning, God revealed his law progressively. This is a principle now that I want you to be able to get. We do not have really just a revelation of law. We have a first one on Mount Sinai. And it's a beautiful and brilliantly organized one, and we study it and appreciate it and value it. But we appreciate the fact that after that, the law came in stages. We have, uh, first of all, the presentation of the law throughout the book of Numbers. That is, once they leave Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. The Israelites are in the wilderness, and something happens. They come to Moses, what do we do about this? Moses says, I don't know, I'll ask God, which is a good answer. And you, he asks God, 
and God says, now do this and make it a statute forever after. So that's what they do. And then something else happens a little bit later, and Moses again goes to God with the request of the people for an answer. God gives a ruling. That becomes a law. So there's a progression of laws that takes place during the 40 years in the wilderness. And then after they have finished that 40 years in the wilderness, as you know, they're in the plains of Shittim in uh, Moab, about to enter the promised land. A new generation has grown up. And Moses, at God's inspiration, gives a new set of laws, not inconsistent with and with many repetitions from the Sinai law, but the Deuteronomy law is a new formulation, and it even has many features of style that are different, and it doesn't always include everything from the old brought into the new, and it adds some things that weren't in the old. It's really a reformulation. God does that already with his own law through Moses himself as a way of preparing us for something. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this covenant structure, but I know there are going to be some people here who haven't yet had a chance to learn this. And just, I want to point out that in the Old Testament, we get our law within a covenant. We don't get law by itself. In all the rest of the ancient world, you get law separate from a covenant. It's just a law code. But we get law as part of a covenant and as a subsidiary feature of a covenant. The whole business is relationship. God wants to establish the relationship. So he does this, first of all, as he structures. You can see this structured in first covenant at Sinai in Exodus through Leviticus and, and the, the supplemental laws in Numbers, and you can see it in one big package in Deuteronomy. God starts with a preamble, very simply identifying the parties. Uh, then a prologue. Here's how we are related. I brought you out of Egypt. You know, that's who I am. That's who you're related to. I've done this for you. Now come and be in covenant relationship with me. Then the stipulations. Those are the things we call, quote, the laws, the individual laws. But there also are a list of witnesses. And you know, the big witness is Yahweh himself. I'm the Lord. I'm watching. It's my relationship with you that I want to establish. I'm uh, paying attention to it. There's also something called a document clause. Let's preserve this law. And the document clause is so beautifully preserved in the Old Covenant with God's copy of the Ten Commandments on one tablet, Israel's copy on the other tablet. They're placed together inside a box in the ark, right side by side, symbolizing that where God and Israel meet, they meet on the basis of rules. Now, it's not totally on the basis of rules. It's not rules that make the relationship. It's that rules are a part of the relationship. Rules are a way of cementing and carrying on the relationship. But there they are, right together, God's copy and Israel's copy. And finally, there are sanctions, blessings and curses. God understands incentives. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I took a course from B.F. Skinner, a famous name in psychology and in behavioral psychology. And, and Skinner taught beautifully and influenced everybody ever since the, that there are ways you can influence people by setting the incentives. If you say, do such and such and you'll get this, fail to do it and you'll get that, people respond. Even pigeons respond. Hamsters respond. Put the right incentive structure in front of people and they respond. And God has done that. 
God actually knew more than B.F. Skinner, and he knew it earlier. It's just great. Old Testament law is given in a covenant framework. And, I've said that already, of course, but it's on the analogy of a second millennium, very early. This is second millennium B.C., between 2000 and 1000 B.C. Treaty covenants, covenants that established relationships between people so that they could function together, in effect, as family. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later. So keeping the law is supposed to help you keep your covenant relationship with the giver of the law. It's really a positive thing. It is a relationship-renewing enterprise. Now, we have something special in Old Testament law that is absolutely without parallel anywhere in the laws of the ancient world. Can't find them in Hammurabi, can't find them in any of the Hittite law codes, or the Assyrian laws, anything. And, and that's that group that we call the Ten Commandments. They really, really are special. There are features of the way they're written, the form, and all kinds of other things that make them special. But in that way, they're more like what we might call a constitution. You know there's a lot of federal law. I heard recently that there are, I can't remember, but I think it's 86,000 pages of federal tax law. Federal tax law is 86,000 pages. That's just the tax law. But anybody can read the Constitution. It doesn't take long. It's short, and it gives the basics. It kind of gives the essential overview. And then after that, we have lots and lots and lots of other laws. Well, it's something like that. At least it's a useful analogy to say that the Ten Commandments are kind of a basic law of the Old Covenant, after which then follow many, many other particular laws. So they're special. And it's reasonable and proper that they should be a big part of Christian teaching. We have them renewed in the New Covenant, all of them. All the Ten Commandments are in one way or another, by Jesus and Paul, alluded to and approved of and mentioned in such a way that I think that it's wonderful for you as pastors to teach that to your kids. Make sure that kids in Sunday school know the Ten Commandments. You know perfectly well that if you went up to the average person in downtown Birmingham and said, here is $1,000, recite me the Ten Commandments, nobody would get the thousand. Many of you might not be able to get the thousand, right? Am I right? Huh? Huh? At least at Gordon-Conwell they can't. So Lots of people really, they could remember several of them. The adultery one, yeah, I know that one. That's really clear. But they honestly, they'd leave something out. Oh, oh, coveting. Oh, we should have done coveting. So it's very special. And these laws are great to learn. They are a great part of what people need to know. And I was telling a class earlier today that in the church that I pastor, we have in the vows that you take as a to become a member of our church in the church covenant vows we have one vow that says uh, i will keep the ten commandments so just we make people pledge to do it because basic morality has gone out the window in so much of our culture people need that kind of understanding now the old covenant law gives us three levels of comprehensiveness there are the two great commandments. These were recognized already in Judaism before Jesus' day. Love God with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are the Ten Commandments, which are very specially located and specially structured. And then there are the remaining 601. 
Uh, this is a traditional count. You really don't have to think of it this way, but it does work. It is convenient to say that there are, as Maimonides said, 613 commandments. It's convenient to number them that way. The so-called Ten Commandments are actually called mostly, more often than not, the Ten Words because they're spoken directly by God himself in contrast to all other commandments which come via Moses as the spokesperson for God. But those ten on Mount Sinai, God actually said with a voice so overwhelming that the people of Israel said, after this, please, can we have just Moses say it? We're going to die if we have to listen to that voice anymore. So powerful and impressive was the, the voice of God. So they are special, and they're even delivered in a special way. But that's one way to think of it. Three levels of comprehensiveness. The two great commandments that cover everything. The Ten Commandments that clarify those and make it work for loving God and loving neighbor in a beautiful division in the Ten. And then finally, the remaining 601. When we preach biblical law, we ought to honor that hierarchy because we've got to honor something that is called the paradigmatic nature of the law. If we don't do that, we're going to fall into some kind of legalism. Let me, let me see if I can explain this, uh, try to understand how paradigmatic law really would work. Ancient laws gave guiding principles or samples rather than complete descriptions of all things regulated. That's very important to get. But ancient law codes did this. Uh, it was their nature to do so. They didn't try to regulate all law. They just said, here's a law in this kind of situation. Here's what justice should be. Now, in that kind of situation, here's what justice should be. These are samples. These are paradigms. From this, you can extrapolate to all other possible ideas about law, all other justice, all other propriety and stability in a government. Modern law codes, the kinds we all are used to, are exhaustive. That is, uh, we try to specify everything that is forbidden or regulated. And we say that's what a law should be. So, you know, lots of times people get off from criminal prosecution on technicalities. And they get off because there isn't exactly the wording in the law that would cause them to be convicted. Years ago when I was a, a student, I was working as a security guard, and one of the other guards I worked with was a retired Boston police detective. And he told me about so many stories where the young rookie cops would botch an arrest because they would misunderstand the charge and make it wrong. And a classic example of that is the law of burglary. In Massachusetts, burglary is defined as breaking and entering in the nighttime with the intent to commit a felony. Breaking and entering in the nighttime with intent to commit a felony. Those five ingredients have to be there for burglary. If the defense attorney is defending a person arrested by a policeman around, say, seven at night, 
maybe in the month of May or so, and this person has been arrested and brought in and charged with burglary, if the defense attorney can create doubt about when the individual broke into the building, into the store, into the shop, into the gas station or whatever, and say sundown was 7.04 on this night. When did you arrest the suspect? Well, I arrested the suspect in the property at 7.30. Okay, how do you know the suspect broke in within the last 30 minutes? Couldn't the suspect have broken in at 6.30? And then, you know, the person gets off because they arrested him for burglary, and it should have been just B and E, breaking and entering. Or you've got to prove the intent to commit a felony. If somebody's in a building at night and broke in, but there's no evidence they stole anything, then you can't prove it was burglary. Or if the person didn't break in, but just snuck in through an open door or an open window, then they can't be arrested for burglary either. Now, you know, that wouldn't have happened in Bible times. No judge would have said, oh, yeah, that's a case dismissed. Wouldn't have happened in Bible times because they didn't think that way. They didn't think you had to have everything spelled out absolutely perfectly in every possible way. That's a legalistic way. We have our own sort of legalism that parallels the Pharisees' legalism, quite honestly, in modern thinking. And in, in real biblical law, they didn't think that way that person would have been, in fact, punished for burglary. So, uh, and we'll say more about this, but that's a very important thing. And so I would like to suggest to you that nobody can keep the Old Testament law. It is a catch-22. It's a purposeful catch-22. It's there to set standards, but it cannot fully be kept because the extrapolations are too all-encompassing. More about that as we go along. Trying to keep the law perfectly, at any rate, then, denies the element of grace. It says, I'm not thinking about really the relationship which God has established for me. I'm just thinking about being perfect. It honestly misses the boat. If you view the law paradigmatically, it touches on a great many aspects of life, easily understood, and then when you think more and more about it, it touches on all aspects of life. If you really understand what it is to love God with your whole heart, your neighbor as yourself, you get it, you suddenly say, hey, I belong to God. I'm to be a holy person. Or an ancient Israelite could say, hey, with these laws, we are to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Our whole life with every breath we draw is to be a life that says we reflect the holy people that God has made us and called us to be. You can never wiggle out of it. You can never say, I did that, I tithed all of my spices, and I didn't walk too far on the Sabbath, so I'm a good guy. You say instead, every bit of it is calling me into relationship, and unless God establishes and renews the relationship in me, I can't please him because the, the extrapolations, the implications are too great. It's everywhere, it's everything. Now, the question may be asked, if Jesus makes so much of apparently following at least some ideas in Judaism, of the two great commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, why are they where they are? Why weren't they the first two laws given on Mount Sinai? <coughs> why do you have to wait for Deuteronomy for the one law about loving God with your whole heart? And why is the other one 
snuck on the end of a law about vengeance, because loving your neighbor as yourself is done exactly that way. Well, I would argue that it's a part of a purposeful organization. And I'm making an assertion that I'm not proving very well here because that's the kind of pressure we're under time-wise. But I think it's exactly what we would expect God to do in the ancient Near Eastern context, to have two of the greatest of the laws somewhere in the middle, not necessarily up front. That's actually a design, not a happenstance. He didn't say, gee, I don't know why I didn't front those a little sooner. Uh, that's not it at all. Another observation, New Covenant believers have got to be guided by the Pentateuchal law, but they must make the mistake of not trying to live under a now old covenant. That's just very important to get. Make sure people say, the value of the old covenant law for me is as a New Covenant believer. It is not that I'm trying to become an Old Covenant believer. That would be a step backwards. Now, I want to review with you, this is going to go fast, too fast, unfairly fast, because there's so much of it. But if I can give you just a touch of it, I want to review with you how these ancient laws looked, what they were like. We got a lot of them. There's a lot of law that God has given. And my point in doing this is simply as follows. I think that in God's common grace, he gave laws to human beings for many, many years and in many, many circumstances before he had Moses give laws to the Israelites. And he did this so that when the Israelites received their laws and when many other people heard about those Israelite laws and uh, examined them and thought about them, they would all be able to say, yeah, I get it. I get what's going on here. I see how truly impressive these laws are in comparison to the other laws that have been given for centuries. I see what is comparable and sort of basic and necessary for any law. I see what is better and purer and remarkably different. And I appreciate it all. I think that's what we're doing. We're dealing with the fact that many truths in the Scripture have a dim, distant, and distorted reflex out there somewhere among the pagans. The pagans worship. Worship's not bad. Graciously, God teaches them that they ought to worship. The pagans even offer sacrifices. That's not bad. So the fact that pagans do it doesn't make it bad. And the fact that it's not totally unique for Israelites to offer sacrifices is not some problem. It's all part of common grace. It's the way that God sort of prepares people to think certain ways and thus be able to receive the good news of his salvation and not find it so totally culturally foreign to them that it makes no sense whatever. Anyway, starting with a sample of these laws, there was a guy named Urukagina who was a king of a place called Lagash, and this was in the days when Sumerian was spoken in much of Mesopotamia. Uh, we don't know what his laws actually said, but we have references to them, and I'm thrilled to say that the first thing we know that he did was to correct tax corruption. Boy, talk about the necessities. Uh, some social reforms, outlawed diandry. I don't know that most of you have had a big problem with diandry. That's where you have two husbands for a given wife. And he corrected some abuses of the monarchy. 
Now, about 400 years later, in a period of Sumerian government called the Ur III period, a guy named Ornamu, uh, or his son Shulgi, we can't be sure which one it is, uh, produced 40 laws with a prologue, a little introductory bunch of statements about the right of a king and so on, and an epilogue, and sandwiched in between just 40 laws. That was it, 40. Now, I've already mentioned that the Old Testament has 613, and that federal American law and state laws have tens of thousands of laws. 40, that's what he came up with. They were all in this casuistic format, which is an if-then format. If so-and-so does this, then the penalty is that. And there were three basic themes to all of these laws. They want to have justice. Everybody's responsible. You can't just say, well, it doesn't apply to me. And there are consequences if you uh, obey or don't obey. Not long after that, a guy named Lipit Ishtar in a place called Isin. This is all part of ancient Mesopotamia. It's all around where Iraq and Iran are today. Uh, issued a law, and he had 40 laws. Same kind of thing. He's honoring the basic idea, the basic format, but he does produce a new formulation of those laws. And he honors the style, the casuistic style, and so on. And the prologue says, now it's my turn. Uh, in the past, these other guys did this and they were wonderful, but now I have been selected by the gods to produce these laws. And he says it's to establish order, eradicate enmity and violence and bring well-being to the lands. That's what he wanted to do. Here are some examples. I just, I've, uh, there are uh, all told hundreds and hundreds uh, if you look at all the different law codes together, but from this group, here's law number 10. If, a, if somebody cuts down a tree in another person's garden, he has to pay a half a mina of silver. Not a bad law. Doesn't say how big the tree is. Doesn't say, you know, if it's been there two years or 200. That's the law. If a father's alive, his daughter, as long as she's a certain kind of priestess or a prostitute, may live in his house like an heir. In other words, he can't kick her out. These are protected vocations for young women kind of pagan thinking, but that's what they said. And another law, this is huge, if a person rented an ox and injured its flesh at the nose ring, one-third of the price. Now, notice what's not here. I assure you, if I could give you the whole list, there is nothing about renting a donkey. There's nothing about renting a goat. There's nothing about renting a horse. There's nothing about renting any other animal. And there's nothing about injuring its ear or its tail and so on and so on. That's it. There's nothing about cutting down flowers or backing your truck into some guy's garage and wrecking the door or whatever would be the equivalent in ancient times. There's nothing about other kinds of professions. These laws give samples of sometimes what we think of the most of bizarre, minor, obscure sorts of things. I have other samples uh, that, I'll, that I'll show you. Note that Lipit Ishtar, this guy uh, whom you may never have heard of before today, and some of you may be saying to yourselves, yeah, and I hope I can die and go to heaven without ever hearing of him again. This guy, an important person in the history of law, was totally free in modifying prior laws. He didn't think he was insulting the prior law. He re revered the prior law, but he still reformulated a law for his own kingdom. I'm a new king, I got a new kingdom, I am supposed to do that. That was his understanding. So he kept the general format but reformulated the laws. Keep that in mind. 
We have some anonymous laws. We don't know who they did, who made them because the beginnings and the ends of the tablets are broken. And so uh, the laws of X is what they're typically called. And then the laws about rented oxen. Uh, several damaged oxen, oxen, oxen uh, punishments are given in that particular one. And there's a law about uh, forms and contracts of which maintaining a common wall is a big deal. Then a law code comes, hey, we're up to 60 laws. This is big. Eshnunna, 1800 B.C. And they're casuistic again. And some of them are even semi-apodictic. Apodictic is a type of law that the Ten Commandments are in where you actually say to somebody in a second person, you must not kill. You must not commit adultery. You must not covet. That kind of language is actually not paralleled anywhere else in the ancient Near East. And again, reformulation is the key. Here's a couple of examples from Eshnunna. A core of barley, a shekel of silver. Price control laws. Wages of winnowers, a sa'ah of barley. Somebody takes another man's daughter and does such and such. Uh, she's still not a housewife. And finally, a favorite of mine, a personal one that I think I'm delighted to know, if a man bites off the nose of another man and severs it, he has to pay a mina of silver. Gee, you'd think the guy would appreciate it in the days before plastic surgery that this guy, but no, it's actually a penalty. Then comes Hammurabi's Law. This is the one you've probably heard of, but because it's the biggest one in the ancient world that we know about, but you know, there's still only 282 laws compared to 613 in the Old Testament. Um, and again, it's a reformulation for a new kingdom, and there's a typical emphasis in the prologue and epilogue on Hammurabi's right to give a law and right to have it obeyed. The king is the focus of legitimacy in these laws. Here are some typical ones. Catch a slave is a certain reward bounty. If you foreclose on somebody who owns a slave, that you can't automatically say, hey, I want my slave back because of the bankruptcy or something. If a son hits his dad, they have to cut off his hand. Brutal, but that was what they did. And then uh, here's a great one. An upper-class person hires a rowboat. He has to give two and a half sheh of silver per day as its hire. Imagine that. Imagine that Hammurabi who says, I have 282 laws. What a list of laws. Devotes one of them to rowboat rates. Now, you know, there's nothing about renting a wagon. It's not in there. It's, and they didn't think there needed to be because Hammurabi could, would say to you, what is your problem? If you know what a rowboat rents for, just extrapolate. Just say, okay, relatively speaking, that means a wagon would rent for this and a camping tent would rent for that and a house would rent for this and a, a wagon with oxen to pull it would rent for that. Just extrapolate. Just think it through. What's your problem? I gave you a rowboat price, that's it. You got it. And that's how they thought. So, they, so nobody could say, I kept all 282 of your laws, Hammurabi. You better like me. No, as I'll point out later, that really doesn't work. And you'd be a fool to think that. You'd be a fool to think that saves you from Hammurabi's wrath. It doesn't work that way at all. Now, just a little bit more on Old Testament laws and we're done. There are also some Middle Assyrian laws, some Hittite laws, and some Neo-Babylonian laws that we know about, um, and that's it. 
that's our corpus, about a dozen different uh, types of law from which we can reason. So these important observations, I think. It's my contention to you that Paul talks about uh, law to us in Romans 13 and says, look, the fact that there are laws and that there are law enforcers is a gift from God. It's a plan of God. We aren't just a bunch of Christians who are out in the pagan world and God didn't think that through. He wants us to appreciate that these people keep law and order, and law and order is good, and even in a pagan society, law and order is good. And you get the basic format and the basic concept uh, operating there, and Paul says you, you know how to appreciate that. Ancient laws are written so that people would know what a king wants. What is the king's definition of law and order? But when a law court case came, the judges never cited the law. They didn't say, oh, finally, a guy trying to cheat somebody on a rowboat rental. Ha! Huh! Been waiting for this case because we've had to dismiss all the others. No, they, they dealt with all these things. I spent a year when I was a grad student at Yale reading law cases. And they were from right after the time of Hammurabi. And you know, none of the judges ever quoted Hammurabi's law, even in cases where it was the same kind of situation, even in the rowboat cases. They just didn't do it. And it's because they knew that the law was a paradigm. It gives an idea of the standards of justice. But it says in the individual court case, there are a million permutations of how somebody did something or tried to cheat somebody else. So let these be the standards to guide you, and you extrapolate from those and make your observations. So here's the final thing I want to say in this lecture this morning. This is completely consistent with the New Testament teaching. Governmental authorities have the right to make and enforce laws. Christians have the obligation to obey civil laws of a society, uh, whatever society they live in. And remember that Paul gives that advice in Romans 13 at a time when there was such a government as we would loathe. The government of Nero, that disgusting character, it is in that very time, in the lifetime of that, and rule of that very awful tyrant who hated and persecuted the church, that Paul says, those magistrates, those people in governmental authority are there for your good. And it's a way of linking the common grace of God's revelation and establishment of law in the secular realm with uh, the way that Christians are to behave, but also with the way that Christians are to understand that laws are good. Rules bring relationships, even at that extremely pagan level of just being on good terms with the government of wherever you happen to live. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.